I'd like for you to uh, turn your Bibles to Ephesians 1, if you would. Ephesians chapter 1, and uh, we'll start there. We'll go a couple of places in that book for the next few minutes. It's good to see everyone here. Once again, we welcome you, and glad that we get to be in this portion of worship together where we study a little part of the Word of God together, and I hope it'll be helpful to you. We welcome all of you and look forward to being with you this afternoon as well. One of the characteristics of being a human being is that we are time-bound. We live, in a sense, in the moment. We are finite people, finite creatures. We don't know the future. We have the past that we are aware of, but even, even then our awareness of the past is in some way flawed. We don't have a perfect interpretation even of the past, and we certainly don't know what's going to happen in the future. We're time-bound. We live in the moment. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just we're finite people. You know, we're human beings. We are bound up in this, uh, in this moment. There are some difficulties associated with that, especially if we're Christians. We, we know that we ought to have an appreciation for the future, and we ought to live in the moment in view of something that hasn't yet happened. And so it's hard for us as human beings, I think, sometimes to, to, uh, to live as we, sh- we should. Um, this, this thing, what I'm talking about, this time thing, is, I mean, uh, like, advertisers really take advantage of this. 30 days, same, same as cash. Is, is there anybody who hasn't at some point either given in or at least been, been really close to giving in? I want the thing right now, right? I, wanna, I want it right now, and I can have it right now. 30 days, same as cash. Just give it to me now, and I'll pay for it later. I mean, that's the whole, the whole credit world is built on that to an extent, right? I mean, that's the way it works. So that's, what that's doing is it's appealing to this, this desire in us to experience what I want right now, and, and I'll worry about the consequences later. I'll worry about that later on. You know, that's, that's what I'm talking about. Time. We live, we live in the moment. Now, Christ called us to live a different way. And there is a very real sense in which we have to develop the ability to live right now, to make decisions right now in view of something that hasn't happened yet. But it's based on something that has happened, and it's in view of something that will happen, but we live in the moment looking back to the future and looking, I mean, looking back to the past and looking ahead to the future. So when I'm talking about hope with you, with you all this morning, what I'm wanting you to think about, what I'm wanting us as, as a church to think about is, uh, is just learning to view this life differently, and um, especially time. Use this expression before, it's not original with me, I don't know where it came from, who observed this initially, but they already, but not yet. You remember I talking about this? If you've been around Hoover for a while, I've used that expression before. Already, but not yet. You got to read the Bible. You got to view life in an already, but not yet kind of perspective. Already, but not yet. We've already experienced some things, but we haven't yet fully experienced them. So we already have been saved, but we're not yet fully saved. Because the Bible uses saved in two different senses. You have been saved, if you're a Christian, saved from sin, saved from your past, but you have not yet been fully saved because you haven't yet fully realized all the blessings associated with salvation. Okay, see what I'm saying here? So we already, but not yet. God has already conquered death, but not yet fully in the sense that when Jesus comes again, death will be no more. Death will die, so to speak. Death has already been conquered. Jesus conquered it on that Sunday morning 2,000 years ago when he came out of the tomb, but yet we still die. People still die, you know? And so there's a sense in which we look back 
we look back in communion, but I hope at, in communion we also anticipate things that are to come. And I appreciate Brother Wade's bringing that out this morning in his thoughts. So we, we, uh, we, we think about time, we think about time in these two perspectives, already but, but not yet. So I want to talk to you about hope today. This will be more of a topical kind of thing, though I am pretty much going to stay in Ephesians uh, for the next few minutes. We'll skip around a little bit in Ephesians, and I'm even going to ask you to turn outside of the book of Ephesians once. But let's think about hope, and let's think about how it changes our lives, and think about what it means for us as Christians. In Ephesians 4, 4, in the middle of a little section there where Paul's talking about seven ones, you know, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, so on. In the middle of that, he says, you have one hope. What I want to try to convince you of this morning, if you don't already believe it, I want to try to convince you that the hope that you've got in your life right now as a Christian, it is a tremendously valuable possession. And secondly, I want to convince you that because you have hope, you live your life differently. Those two things. I want you to know about your hope, and I want you to know about how that hope changes who you are and how you live life. So that's my goal for the next few minutes is to convince you of that. We'll go to Ephesians chapter 1. Now, and I want to point out one thing out of those verses that Johnny read a few minutes ago. Ephesians 1, 11 through 14. You got your Bible open? Hope you do, because I want you to see this. I'm not going to put this on the screen. I'd like for you to see it in your own Bible, whether it's one like this or one on your tablet or phone. Just look at it. Ephesians 1. I want, to, I want you to look back. We read 11 through 14, but I actually want to go back to verse 3, because I want you to see something important here. This is... Verses 3 through 14, you see that? In, your, in my Bible, it's two paragraphs. Probably ought to be one. It's just one sentence in the Greek text, which is pretty neat. One sentence. Paul rambled on. It's like he got started with the word blessed in verse 1, and he couldn't stop. He was just so excited about, man, we are so, so very blessed. And he kept on going for, in our Bibles, it goes on for 12 verses. But that's one, one sentence, just one sentence, starting with the word bless in verse 3 and ending, in the English at least, with the word glory at the end of verse 14. So it's just a, just a long, rambling kind of sentence where he, he lists, depending on how you look at it, five different things God has given us. I'm not going to study all five of those, really just one of them, but I want you to see at least the others. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And he just goes on. In verse 4, he says, he chose us. Verse 5, he predestined us. In verse 7, we have redemption through his blood. Verse 9, he's made known unto us the mystery of his will. And then verses 11 through 14, he has given us an inheritance. So five things, and the last of them is what I want you to think about with me for a minute. In him we have, verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, an inheritance, an inheritance that is out of this world to uh, speak in a way that's really true. It is not completely realized in this world. Look at verse 12. We were the first to hope in Christ. It might be to the praise of His glory. In verse 14, the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. Now, would you do something? We're going to come back to Ephesians, but would you turn with me to 1 Peter for a minute? I'm going to read it to you, so you can... Just sit and listen, or you can turn there and read it with me. 1 Peter 1. I love this text. 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Listen to this. Peter, uh, another apostle, writes this. You'll notice some similarities here. 
Verse 3, 1 Peter 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. If you're a Christian today, you got something very, very important, and it is invaluable. And that is, you know that this life is not all there is. And God calls us to live in view of that expectation and that confidence that this life with all of its joys and all of its brokenness and all of its disappointments, this life is not all there is. You have an inheritance in Christ. I love that image, you know, the, the idea of an inheritance. An inheritance is something, at least biblically, you anticipate with great joy, but you don't yet fully have it. You think about an inheritance that you may have coming to you through your parents or a rich uncle or whatever. You got this inheritance that, that you're looking forward to. It's going to be cool. You don't have it yet, but you've got the anticipation of it, which is pretty cool. Same thing in Christ. He uses this idea. We've got an inheritance. Now here's, I want to, I want to be balanced here with you because sometimes... People criticize Christians because we get too caught up in thinking about heaven. Uh, maybe we think too much about it. Some people, maybe we think too much about it. I don't know. Sometimes we're criticized uh, for believing, believing this uh, pie in the sky and the great by and by sort of thing. We, we're just all focused on heaven and, and um, so, so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. You ever heard that expression? Sometimes people might say that. And it is true that we can get so caught up in what it's going to be like there after this life, that we forget God expects us to live here. And he expects to, us to make this world a better place. It's not all about the future. But at the same time, if we don't think about the future, sometimes this life's just going to, man, it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard to deal with, you know? And so there's, there's, a, there's a balance here. We think about what it's going to be like, but that changes the way we live in the moment. You see what I'm saying? This, this is, we have an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. That word kept is a word that means guarded. It means nobody's going to mess it up. Nobody's going to take it away from you. If you're a Christian, you don't have to worry about your inheritance getting messed up by the stock market crashing or whatever or getting burned up in a fire. You don't have to worry about that. God's protecting it. You've got an inheritance that's nothing's going to happen to it. Moth and rust can't corrupt it. Thieves can't steal it. Nothing's going to happen to it. It's going to be there waiting on you. There's a sense in which that defines how we live our lives. I'll get to that in a second. But I want you to see that. This hope as an inheritance. Colossians 1.5. Just listen to a couple passages. Colossians 1.5 is laid up for you in heaven. Titus 1.2. It's in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began. He's not lying about it. He's not joking around about it. Titus 2.13, waiting, we, we are waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. One more, Titus 3.7 says, we're justified by his grace so that we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We've got a hope. We've got a hope. This world, is as it is, is not as it always will be. God's going to make everything right. Hope. We've got hope. And that hope as an inheritance is found in Christ. There's the second thing, really, I want you to see. Back to Ephesians, if, you, if you're stay, still there with me. Look at, look at a couple things. I um, alluded to Titus or uh, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, uh, that long 
one sentence that Paul gives us, but we break it down into, I don't know, five, six sentences, I think, in English. But notice a couple things here. Look at it in your Bible. Ephesians 1. Starts out in this long, blessed, praise God. Um, who has blessed us, verse 3, blessed us where? You see it? In Christ. Verse 4, if you're looking at the ESV, even as he chose us where? In him. Um, you, you would just read on through this. And at the end of verse 6, he has blessed us in the Beloved, right? Verse 7, first two words in English here. In him we have redemption through his blood. Uh, verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things where? In him. Verse 11, first part, first two words. In him. Uh, verse 12, we who were the first to hope where? In Christ. I don't want to belabor this, but I do want you to get a sense. Paul's just obsessed with this. Verse 13, in him you also. Uh, you, you go on. It's not just in Ephesians 1. It's all over Ephesians. In fact, if you look at it, if you just trace this in Ephesians, you'll see Paul does this almost ad nauseum, just over and over again, in him. A lot of times we talk about, we talk about when you become a Christian, Christ comes into your heart. Like Christ is in us. You believe that? Christ is in you. Believe the Holy Spirit lives in you. You believe God is in you? There's a sense in which the Bible teaches, I mean, not only a sense, the Bible does teach that God's in you, Christ is in you, the Spirit is in you. But it was something interesting. I, I never thought about it this way. I was reading one commentary on this text uh, this week, and he pointed out that the Bible says a whole lot more about our being in Christ than it does about Christ being in us. Which maybe it's just a matter of semantics. I don't think it is. I think there are some very real implications. And, and here's, what, here's what this writer said. He said, if you emphasize Christ being in you or the Spirit being in you, then you might have a tendency to minimize the work of Christ. In, in fact, in his words, he said, you may have a Jesus who's one inch tall. In the sense that, think about it for a second, just, and maybe follow this away and think more about it later. If Christ is in you, which he is, we might have a tendency to minimize his work. Like, he's in me, but he's in me, and I surround him to use that spatial kind of language. I, I surround him. He's in me, but I surround him. But if you, if you view it more, and the Bible talks about this more, if you view yourself as being in him, then you recognize what the Bible teaches is true, and that is that you look at everything through him. If he's just in me, then I can still look at things through, through my eyes if I want, and maybe sometimes I might let him kind of come on board and help me think about things a little bit differently. But I'm, I'm viewing the world through my own eyes. He's in me, and that affects me, but I still look at the world through my eyes. You see this distinction? But if I'm in him, I don't have any choice. I see everything through him, right? So we're in him. It's a very, very important biblical concept for us to recognize we're in God, we're in Christ, we're in the body, in the church. We are consumed by God. You don't have any choice then. You make a, you make a decision about what you're going to do. Well, you've got to look at it through Christ because you're all, you're all consumed in him. You're absorbed in Christ. I like that. I hadn't thought about that before I read that this week. That's just that distinction. I think that's pretty important. And it has to do with, uh, with hope. If we're, all this stuff is in Christ. We are in him. Paul's all about that in Ephesians and elsewhere, but especially in Ephesians. Just we're, we're in him, in him, in him, in him, in the beloved, in Christ. 
He's obsessed with it. He talks about it all the time. And as I don't know if, we've, uh, if, I've, if I've emphasized that enough. In him, we have hope. That hope is only in Christ. It's only in Christ. Uh, turn over one, one page, or at least it's one page in my Bible. Ephesians, Ephesians 2, chapter 2. Look at this. Remember we're talking about hope in Christ? Verse, uh, verse 1. Look at Ephesians 2, 1. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirits that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Ugly, ugly picture Paul paints for us there. That's the way we were. That's the way he ta he's talking to these Christians. This is where you were. Look what, that, look what that's like. That life is like outside of Christ. Verse 12. Remember that you were at that time, back when you were dead in trespasses and sins, at that time you were separated from Christ, so you weren't in Christ, and Christ wasn't in you, um, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having, are you reading along with me? What does your Bible say? Having no what? No hope. Good. No hope. That's not good, it's bad. But no hope. Where, where is that no hope? Out there, without God in the world, separated from Christ. I know that it's, it's cool now, in our present day pluralistic kind of world, to say that there's no religion that has the final say, that there's no, uh, you know, from Christianity to whatever world religion we want to talk about, that no religion needs to act as if it is the final revelation of God to humanity. I know that's the politically correct thing to say because it's respectful of other faiths, right? That's, and we want to be respectful of every person. But we also don't want to just ignore what Jesus claims. And Jesus claims, whether you believe it or not, at least understand what he claims. He claims that all hope is in Him. That that's where all hope is. And so, you know, if you're here as someone who's not in Christ, understand what Jesus is claiming. He's claiming to be the full revelation of God and that all of God's promises are bound up in Christ. And if you want to receive those promises, you will be in Him. There's no hope outside of Christ. This is not the reason, not the reason to become a Christian. But I do wonder sometimes how people face some of the difficulties of life without hope in Christ. Because it's got to be hard. It's got to be hard in life to deal with some of the stuff and not really believe that there's any purpose, that there's nothing beyond, you know? In Christ, we have hope. Let's, uh, let's go to, here's the third one for, for taking notes. Hope changes. What does it change? I, I want to I suggest to you that, that it changes. You can talk about, we can, we can list several things here, and I, I want to focus on a couple of them. But I want to suggest to you that it changes everything. It changes everything about your life. It changes the way you view life. Uh, turn, 
We're skipping around, I know, a little, little bit. But turn, if you would, to Colossians chapter 3. Would you do that with me? I want you to notice what it changes and how Paul talks about it. Talks about this change that hope brings about in your life and in our lives corporately, our lives individually. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. If then you've been raised with Christ... A lot of times when the Bible uses the word if, it means since. There's not a, it's, not, it's not really saying if this is true, it might be true, and if it is true. He's saying since you have been raised with Christ. Since you've been raised with Christ. Let's pause just for a second. We've talked about it a lot. We took communion a minute ago. Uh, Jesus died. He was buried and resurrected. We celebrated that. We're in Christ. We're thinking about everything through him. Uh, baptism, this baptistry behind me, a lot of folks have been raised with Christ. Physically, which is only a, only a reflection of what's happening on the inside. You're dying to self. You're being buried in water. You're being raised up physically. But, but the, the big deal is what's going on in that moment because you've been, you're being raised with him, right? You're dying to self. You're being raised with him. You're raised with Christ. So if that's true, since that is true, just notice how Paul's using this. Raised up, and so we look at life differently. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right end of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. You've got a different attitude about everything. For you've died. Man, that, that man, that woman, that person is gone. When Christ, verse 4, who is your life appears, then also, then you also will appear with him in glory. So, look at this. Don't miss the power of this. Verse 5 of Colossians 3. So that's true. What does that look like, Paul? Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. All this stuff. Sexual immorality. Well, what's Paul saying here? Why should Christians live with a different kind of sexual ethic? We don't always do what we physically want to do. We don't always act sexually the way that we might be tempted to act in our minds and with our bodies. Why? Because we know this world is not all there is. Man, if you don't believe in Christ, is, can you blame somebody who's not in Christ, who's not a Christian, for living a different kind of sexual life? I don't, I don't blame them for that. Because if you, don't, if, you don't, if you believe this life is all there is, if you believe that you, you live for the moment, you only live once, live for the weekend, live for uh, whatever conquest, sexual conquest you can have, live, live for the moment, do what feels good, do what you want to do, fulfill your urges. Man, that's a very human thing to do if you don't believe in Christ. Paul says, since you've been raised with Christ, you don't view things like that. So it changes everything, changes the way you live, sexual immorality. That's why Christians, when we're in Christ, we, 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 don't, we don't follow those physical urges outside of the context of marriage between a man and a woman. That's the biblical teaching, you know? Sexual immorality, impurity. That would include not only sexual immorality, but what goes on in the heart and mind. Passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Why don't we accumulate and find our hope and our confidence in how big our houses are, how many cars we've got, what kinds they are, the, the labels on our clothes, and how big our nest egg is, and what the 401k looks like. Why don't we define our lives by that kind of stuff? Why don't we just accumulate and accumulate and accumulate and find all this complete confidence and all that stuff? Why don't we? Because we've been raised with Christ. See what Paul's doing here? He's saying you got hope for something better than this, and so you don't define yourself by sex, by impurity, by fulfilling your desires, by accumulation and, and consumption of material things, uh, just doing everything you want. And, um, and then he goes on, and he says, so we don't, we don't 
live according to anger. Why don't you act consistently with your anger? Why don't you do what your anger tells you to do always? Because you know this life is not all there is. Uh, we can go on and on all day with this. <laughs> anger and wrath and malice and slander. Why don't you talk about people the way people at work talk about people? Why don't you do that? Because you've been raised with Christ. You've got hope. You don't, have to, you don't have to settle all scores now. You don't have to get everybody back. You don't have to talk about people at work like they talk about you. Why? Because you know you don't have to, and it's, you don't have to win this argument. You've been raised with Christ. You don't have to win the argument with your spouse or with your kids, uh, with your people at work. You don't have to win those arguments. You don't have to slander. You don't have to get people back. You don't have to settle these scores, right? Because you've been raised with Christ. D verse 9, do not lie to one another. Why not? If lying might help you get what you want, why don't you lie? Because you don't have to get what you want. You've been raised with Christ. We lie because we're afraid of something. Why are we afraid? Why do, why do we lie? Why do we, why do we let fear lead us to lie? We don't have to fear because we've been raised with Christ. We've got hope of God working in the world and God's going to take care of everything. And so we don't have to manipulate people and lie to them and try to get what we want by lying. We don't have to do that because we've been raised with Christ. Hope changes everything. It changes the way we live. Uh, you know, he goes on. And, and, and verse 12, he he says, you take off all these articles of clothing, you take off lying, you take off gossip, slander, and sexual immorality, and all this stuff. You take all that off. In verse 12, and here's, here are the garments you put on. You put on, you put on compassion. You put on kindness. You put on humility, meekness, and patience. You put on forbearance. You put on, you put on love. And you live a different kind of life because you've been raised with Christ. Hope changes everything. Changes everything. Changes the way you deal with success. You, you, you know, when you succeed, whatever success might look like in your, in your world, success might be getting married. It might be, uh, it might be a promotion. It might be a raise. It might be going on a dream vacation. It might be uh, finally saving up enough money to, to buy something you wanted to buy. I don't, I don't know. What, what does success look like? Getting it getting a degree, um, what does success look like? Those things will be sweet when they come. They'll be sweet, but they don't define who you are. You don't get overly buoyed by, you don't get overly triumphant in successes in the world because you know, and these are, these are small things in the big scope of things, right? They, these these, these aren't, don't define me, and so you don't get too high. You don't become arrogant and condescending to people who don't accomplish what you accomplish. So you don't get so lifted up here because your hope is in something better than that. And then in the valleys of life, you view them differently, right? We view them differently because we trust in God. We trust in God. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. We know there's coming a final day. There is coming a day when Jesus is going to part the clouds. We believe this with all of our hearts as Christians, that he's coming back. Uh, he's coming back. He's going to part the clouds. He's going to come as he left. He's going to descend, and he's going to change everything that we've experienced up until this point. He's going to redefine everything. He's going to redeem everything. And we're going to be with him like we've never even fully fathomed or dreamed of. We've thought about it. We've dreamed of it, but not, not, not exactly accurately. We anticipate that day. And, and so here's, here's where I wanted to go with this. I'm going to close, but please don't forget this point here. Please don't forget this message. We live, this is hard, 
But we live every day. We make decisions today based on the perspective of that moment when Jesus comes back and everything is changed finally and eternally. We make decisions today from the perspective of here when he comes back. That's hard because every instinct in you says, do what feels good right now. Make the decision that I want to do right now. Do it physically, mentally, emotionally, whatever. Uh, that we're defined by the moment. But you know what? That's, that's what it means to be non-human, really. A non-human, an animal, is able only to respond to instincts. What happens in the moment? That non-human has no ability to make decisions based on some anticipated future. One of the things that separates you and me from that world is we understand that there is something beyond the moment because we have hope that's only in Christ. And so it changes everything. We live today in view of that day. Now, we, 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 make this, we, we try to change this world. We try to make this world a better place, better place. We're not just so obsessed that we just can't wait maybe to get there, to hasten that. Or we do hasten it. We anticipate it. But we live in the moment in view of the future. If you're not a Christian today, we've already talked about this. Maybe, maybe you're ready to become a Christian, to, to live with that kind of hope. God will give you that kind of hope. One of the things about becoming a Christian is that God will bless you with a reason to live a different kind of life. Be buried with Him in baptism today. We'll raise you up out of the water, and He will raise you up out of your spiritual grave. He will give you a new hope and a new Lord and a new focus. What a blessing it is. And if you're ready to become a Christian today, we would, uh, we'd be thrilled to help you in your obedience. Maybe you need to come back to Him. It's so easy for you and me, once again, to sink back into an earthly way of viewing life, of living life, where I'm living in the moment without any view of the future, really. Maybe today you need to come back to him and say, Lord, I want you once again to raise within me an awareness of what it means to live as a Christian. Let's stand and sing. If you need to respond, please come now.